Welcome to Dog Ears Shaken and Stirred. I'm Leah Clinton. This episode is our second with the story read by the author herself. As we talked about last episode, the next phase of Dog Ear is to help authors transform their written stories into audio in their own voice. Today we're sharing a story about the author's experience of battling severe sickness with the expectation of death. Here is Five Years Ago I Wrote My Obituary by Abby Norman. This audio presentation is read to you by the author with editing and post-production by Dog Ear. For more, visit hearedogear.com. Abigail Marie Norman died in Bronxville, New York on September 28, 2010, after a brief illness. She was born in Rockport, Maine on April 11, 1991, to Carl Norman Jr. and Kathleen McLeod Norman of Searsport, Maine. She was a sophomore at Sarah Lawrence College, where she had received a full merit scholarship due to her outstanding academic achievements and writing accomplishments. She was a graduate of Searsport District High School, where she was part of the student government and a passionate member of the theater troupe, biding her time both on stage and backstage. She was also a member of a professional theater company while still attending school full-time. Abby was bright, and kind of weird, but she managed to have more friends than enemies in the end, and that was what really counted. She was never too busy to stop and pet a dog, and was proud to drink her coffee black and write her notes in cursive. She is survived by her parents and her younger brother Caleb of Searsport, her aunt Dagny Ernest of Thomaston, and dear friends Hilary Gilmore of Searsport, Rebecca Stewart of Bronxville, New York, her adoptive family Don Staples and Andy Knox, and their family of Stockton Springs, and her beloved mentor Maura Dupreet of Belfast. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to the Searsport District High School School for a scholarship fund in Abby's name. Per her request, a funeral will not be held. I scribbled a first draft of this on the back of my Russian verbs worksheet in late September of 2010. I was in a hospital in New York for the second time, my body having begun its rapid decay, and I found myself with the calm certainty that I was soon going to die. More than the certainty was the promise of relief. My will to live through the pain with no known cause was waning with each sunrise. The imminence of losing the only thing that brought me joy, school, was weighing so heavily on my heart and psyche that I had nothing left to live for, unless I found some meaning in whatever illness had befallen me. I'd arrived in New York the previous year, ready to embrace life. I had been liberated from abuse two years before, and was probably in better shape than most 18-year-olds to wrangle the trappings of collegiate semi-adult life. I'd been adrift from the nuclear family since age 12, and legally an adult for two years. When I left Maine, vowing never to return, it wasn't because I was running away from something. I was running toward something. A life, I hoped. A chance. And I got it. For about 18 months. When I penned that brief memorandum on my life, I wasn't thinking in terms of suicide. I was so ill that I couldn't see myself surviving. I was wasting away physically, mentally, and emotionally, and was shrouded in an anticipation of my own demise. I was at an all-time low in life, so to me it seemed that the only way to go any further down was to be six feet under. My ability to remain conscious was limited, and for most of the months I'm referring to I was in a state of half-sleep or sedated indifference. It wasn't all that different from being dead. It didn't really accomplish anything. I just existed. Dead skin cells sloughed off as they do. I inhaled the air around me. 
I lay in my bed, buried under the soothing weight of down comforters in July, and I considered hydrangeas from my second story window. I watched my body wither away, and it reminded me of the skeleton I called mother. The certainty of her inevitable decay and demise, a fate I had attempted to outrun my entire life, was now my day-to-day life. My body became my enemy, having broken the one promise I'd made myself the moment I slipped from my mother's womb. I will never live in that body again. Years passed, and the dying slowed. No longer was it an acute event that lurked on every breath, but a shadowy inevitability of living, perhaps as it's meant to be. I learned how to live in a swollen, painful body, even when I felt like I was living inside a corpse that had already begun to rot. I tried to touch my skin reverently. I was reminded of a man from my youth, a grandfather of sorts, who had been a mortician. I thought about how he would quietly, stoically conduct his work. If I was a corpse, I would just have to be gentle with my melting skin and chipped bones. Sometimes I'd even paint my face so that the people who loved me wouldn't remember me being quite so gray. I never got stronger. I just learned to live with a body that was perpetually weighted, always aching. When I was working again in a hospital where an emergency room trip was never more than an elevator ride away, I decided to devote my mental capacity to understanding how to live as the walking dead. There was a moment on a sudden summer day when I observed an autopsy. The hospital morgue was chilly, but I was sweating, a film of perspiration clinging to my lips behind my surgical mask. The man on the slab was old, decidedly grandfatherly. I found out later that he had been a writer once, like me. He looked a lot older than he actually was, because that's what illness and loneliness does to a body. I remember the expression he wore vividly. His eyes were wide open and glassy, mouth agape in almost a comical way. It was as though he had died in the middle of pulling a face to make a grandchild laugh. He hadn't, of course. He had died alone, as many of us will. What death must have looked like to that man that his face was so odd? I wondered what my face would have looked like. As I watched the pathologist dig around inside of the cavern of this man's dilapidated body, searching for the secret of his demise, I wondered what she would find inside me. The reason for my illness still shrouded in the mystery of my flesh. The reason for my survival encased in the casket of my skull. Suddenly I realized that I had become more fascinated by my survival than my downfall. And that's when I began to heal. Instead of looking at my diminished quality of life and pain-filled days as a death sentence, I marveled at how, despite it all, I was still here. Five years later, I am still here. I don't know why or for what, but my heart still beats. Sometimes I feel it and remember I'm alive. Remembering that man on the cold metal table in the morgue, his heart was large and thick and still. It was too big to fit in my hand. I crumpled up that scrawled obituary into a ball of Russian verbs, the names of those who left lacerations on my heart, and I held it in my fist. Then, I let it fall.